walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, don't believe or shout. Daniel, don't believe or shout. Daniel, don't tell you shout. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with tireless devotion to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you, as always, for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener and viewer, you find the content on this channel enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. If uh, you're interested in content specific to wellness, mindfulness, literature, philosophy, and sleep, do consider checking out my sister project, Numa by Daniel Finner, to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. My guest today, with whom I'm totally jazzed to chat, is the great Alan Paul. Alan is a prolific author, journalist, musician, fellow New Jerseyan, husband and father of three, along with the famed Chinese guitarist and dobro master, Woody Wu. He was a founding member of the aptly named band Woody Allen, <laughs> the band, a quirky quintet of three Chinese and two American musicians, captured Beijing's Band of the Year Award in 2008. Allen writes about the unexpected rise and success of Woody Allen and his time spent as an expat in China in his first book, Big in China. That book, which is simply a delight to read, was followed by One Way Out, The Inside History of the Allman Brothers Band, Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan, and most recently, Brothers and Sisters, a book that focuses on the importance of that best-selling album and the unique way in which it shaped the 1970s. As for Allen's journalistic endeavors, they can be found at publications like the Wall Street Journal, Guitar Player, Substack, and Guitar World. Allen, it's an absolute honor to be joined by you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And I myself am interested in your sleep podcast. I had a horrible night of sleep last night, um, which is not normally the case. I, I actually usually am at peace and do quite well sleeping, but uh, it was just one of those nights last night. So I feel I feel slightly like I'm in an alternate reality today, just so you know. It wasn't in anticipation of this interview, was it? You weren't nervously <laughs> racked. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I was. Uh, I, I was. I had a something. I had something on my mind. I wasn't particularly nervous about, but somehow it just grew as the night went on. So, yeah, sort of, it's but, always uh, tough. Those are the things on which you fixate, and I, it happens to me all the time as well. Yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you a personal link yeah. to the, the little Thank podcast <laughs> with a little, a little bit of sleep strategy, perhaps. But now. We have to talk about other things. As you know, two of the original six members of the Allman Brothers band perished at the tender age of 24. The virtuoso guitarist Dwayne Allman and the bassist Barry Oakley uh, both succumbed to injuries sustained from motorcycle crashes. Now, when I read this in your book, I was rather somberly reminded of all the other great musicians who died before their time, like Hendrix, Cobain, and Janis Joplin, to name but a few. 
So my question to you is, to lead things off, if somehow in the afterlife you were able to organize a band of musicians who died prematurely, to whom would you extend an invitation? Who would be in your band? Oh boy, um, that's that's too difficult. Um, I mean, th really, the, the, my more or less three favorite guitarists all perished early. Uh, du Dwayne Allman, obviously Stevie Ray Vaughan, and and Dwayne Allman. I, I'm sorry, and Jimi Hendrix. Um, I uh, I think they all would have enough restraint to to make room for each other and get along. But if I was starting a dream band, I wouldn't necessarily start with those three guitarists and they might get in each other's way. But um, the, the, you know, I'd rather just focus on that. I mean, I, I would put Otis Redding in there to sing, um, and I guess Barry Oakley on bass, and um, I don't know who would be the, the drummer. There's there's some great options, but like I don't really think Keith Moon fits in well with that band. So if we're actually forming a band and not just like you know favorite musicians, I don't know. I'd have to give the drummer some thought. Probably some um, really great jazz drummer or blues drummer that we're not even thinking of right now. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, we can't have too busy of a drummer if we've got Dwayne, Jimmy, and Stevie. I mean, we need bass players and drummers who are going to just you know be rock solid and stay out of the way a little bit. <laughs> so no John Bonhams, no yeah, no Keith. Moon. No, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that would be a, a different band. We'd have to if we were starting with with John Bonham or Keith Moon, they would be excellent, and we would, but we'd have to build a very different band. Uh, and what about a singer? Would you pick a, like an Amy Winehouse, a Janis Joplin? What do you think? I, I would go with Otis Redding because I just love Otis so much. I, I also love the other two you mentioned, um, so no disrespect to them. But um, I think Otis is is, one, is is probably, you know, he's in my top two or three or four favorite singers of all time. So, Yeah, and, and he died at what age? You know, uh, I'd have to look that up, but I, I think he may have also been about 27. Um, he was about 27. I don't know if he was precisely 27. I think yeah, he still wasn't, or we'd see his picture in, in there as well. But uh, he, he was definitely not yet 30. Yeah, yeah. It's always, like I said, sobering, but also fascinating to look back at the pictures of these people. And in a lot of instances, like Robert Johnson, for instance, he, he you know, it's in black and white or sepia toned and you know, they're in shirt and tie and, and a nice suit and they look so mature and they look so old. And yet, like you said, they're usually, you know, when you're looking at these people who, who died prematurely, they're, they're so young, but they have this certain maturity, yeah. this aura about them. Yeah, it's know. really hard to wrap your head around Dwayne Allman having been 24. Um, it, 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 but, you know, it was a little bit of a different era. I mean, Dwayne dropped out of school when he was 14 and pursued music full time. And so he had lived an inordinate amount of life, uh, both personally and, and musically, by the time he was 24. And a lot of the people who knew him best um, did talk about him, that, that he basically lived his life as if he didn't have long to live. Um, which isn't the same as saying he has a death wish, just, just to be clear, but that he did live like any every day might be his last which is a cliche we all talk about um he actually did that and did seem to have some premonition that he was burning so brightly it might not last um you know and, and he was so young stevie ray vaughn is a, is a tragedy of a different sort he was relatively old <laughs> by these standards of course he was a very young man i think he was he was 35 um but he had completely changed his life. He had cleaned up after near-death experiences with drug and alcohol. 
and um, lived for about four years clean and sober. And his music was getting better and better. And he died in just, it's it's just so stupid, you know. It, it's it's a helicopter crashed into a hundred and fifty foot hill in the fog, um, and so he was really just a passive victim of a horrible circumstance. Um, just when he was really getting his life together, and his music was opening up in all kinds of ways. So um, it was difficult to write about when I wrote the book. I mean, we I had a co-author on this, Andy Allador, and. Um, we sort of put off writing about his death until the last minute when we couldn't because um, it was sort of heavy. And and we felt, this was sort of my thing, but I, I really felt like I couldn't write about his death until I had really, really established his life um, for the readers and also for myself. Because I wanted, I, I, I don't know if I was conscious about this as I was writing, but it struck me at some point. Um, I wanted to feel, I felt like I, I, I had, I felt his death so profoundly. Um, and I was so sad as if like a family member was, was dying. And um, obviously I started the book knowing what happened. <laughs> it's not like a surprise ending or anything, but um, I did get that emotionally involved myself. And um, I made a decision. I did this in one way out to uh, writing about Dwayne. Although, in in both instances, people pick up the book knowing, of course, what's coming. I never really foreshadow it, or um, I mean, I, I mean, I lost some pretty good quotes in both of those books because I didn't want to say anything that said things like, "Well, after Dwayne died, you know, I blah blah blah, whatever." I I didn't want that. I didn't want any reference to their deaths until they die, because I felt as a narrative structure. Um, it was important. I wanted the death, although, again, everybody knows when they pick up the book that it happens. I wanted them to feel like shocks because they were shocks when they happened. And I, I thought I wanted the reader to experience that emotional wallop. Um, and I, I should add, I think you handle that very adroitly. Uh, I, for yeah. one, being far less acquainted with the band, uh, taking the Almond Brothers band first, I knew that Dwayne died at a young age, uh, mm -hmm. I didn't know how. Uh, and and I didn't know that Barry Oakley then then died just a couple of years later. Yeah, so, in the um, same thing. So, it, so the way in which you describe it, for those of us who are less acquainted with the band is actually quite quite gripping. It, you know, it, yeah. it works and very so, well the way you do it. So when I wrote One Way Out, I didn't start off with that intent. It just, it, that came to me as I was writing it. Um, I started, to, and, and so it was a little different with Texas Flood because I had had that experience and came to it in the writing process. Um, I did start Texas Flood with that intent, and I did have a co-author, and I had to rein him in sometimes on that. I mean, he he put some things in, and we were collaborating on it, but but he he got it. I mean, it just, there was a little bit of a process of me explaining this the setup, and 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 he he was complete. It wasn't like a, a, a fight about anything. It was just like something I had to so to say, nope, that can't go there. We can find a place for it later, or it's just going to have to go. I mean, um, it, it is, you know, I, I studied creative writing my first two years in college, and then um, ultimately decided I really was, I loved the writing, that I didn't feel that I was super creative. Um, I had friends in my writing program who I thought were writing better fiction than I was. I was sort of self-aware enough to think, eh, I, you know, I, I'm just going to use some of these writing techniques I've learned and, and write 
journalism, nonfiction, um, which I think was a good decision. But I do remember one, there's a few specific things I learned in, in these writing seminars, fiction writing seminars. And one of them that's always stuck with me is um, sometimes, and, and in journalism, there's an expression, sometimes you have to kill your babies. But I, it, which is really gross, you know, way to say it. But um, I, I never heard that in a journalism content until much later. But the same principle applied in creative writing. I remember my professor saying, look, this whole page here is really interesting and well-written, but it doesn't fit in the narrative. And you're just going to have to take it out. And I said, but it's so good. You know, <laughs> he said, it is. It's very well written and it's interesting, but it, it, it pulls the story in the wrong direction. And those are the kind of things you can save. This was, this was, I was still typing on a typewriter, believe it or not. Um, you know, shove that in a drawer and, and maybe you'll find another place for it. But uh, that happens all the time. And, and that really stuck with me. And in writing these books, that's a huge, um, that's a huge part of it because I really do want to have narrative drive. It's really important to me. Um, when I'm when I'm writing the books, one of the things I turn to reading wise is crime fiction, um, usually by Elmore Leonard or uh, Walter Mosley, George Pelicanos, uh, a lot of Mosley on the, the last one. Because um, they these guys are so good at pacing and at each chapter leaving you wanting more. And obviously the content is completely different, but I do want my books to have that same drive and feeling. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I, I probably go too far and cut out things that I should, could have left in. And I, and I, I've become, you know, that's, I think I get better in each book at, at refining that at keeping the narrative really driving, but allowing myself knowing where the tangents are okay and where they're not. Well, having read, all four of your books, <laughs> I can say Thank you. That, <laughs> that you you certainly uh, maintain that that narrative style that continues to compel a reader. Um, I especially enjoyed your first work, and you might kind of look upon that yeah. more um, as a whimsical. Yeah, yeah, big in China. I love. I mean, I thought it was the most endearing. Of course, it's your personal story, but yeah, you you tell Thank it you. such a. Um, a warm and intimate way. So it, I felt like I was right there by your side, touring the, yeah. the Chinese uh, countryside Thank or country. You, you uh, know, I all these blues clubs. Um, but let me let me ask you before you before you get into that. I just have to comment. It's to me, it's it's interesting that you you declare yourself as not being particularly creative. But here you are as this improvisational blues guitarist, right? So you're. Um, up in front of a crowd, you're singing, you're playing guitar, and one would look at you and deem you right there on the spot. Certainly, in the in the top percentage of creative individuals on this planet, uh, you know, here you are. Well, so it's it's interesting to me that you say that that maybe you, it doesn't. Oh, I don't know, manifest itself in your writings, but it does manifest well, itself in your musical production. Thank you. No, let, let me clarify a couple of things. First of all, I'm not in the top one percent of creative people in the world. Um, I have a I have a diversity of creative outlets, which is, is a bit unusual. Um, but I, you know, I I love playing music. I love playing guitar. I love making music with other people. I actually enjoy being on stage in front of people. Um, not not for like a applause or ham handed way, but I like you know the music that I like, it, it jazz and blues and you know 
um, improvisational rooted rock like the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead. It, it's an interaction with the audience. And so it can also, you know, if you're rehearsing or you get there and there's only five people, which happens sometimes, it's an interaction among the musicians still and it can be wonderful. But um, when it's really happening, it's an interaction with the audience. So the audience is a big part of it. Um, you know, you can do everything right at sound check or rehearsal, but it comes alive in front of an audience. So, no, I, I do love that. And I, I, I'm more confident in my creative abilities now than I was then. So it's not that I, I ever th thought I was uncreative. I mean, I think my approach to life is pretty creative and improvisatory um, and, and, and ultimately has worked out. It occasionally has led me to some blind corners that, you know, but usually I've been lucky that it, it works out. I land on my feet, but um, it, it, I'm just talking specifically when I was 19 and 20 years old, my creative writing, I just, I don't know. I, I lacked super confidence in that. And, and there've been times where I, I regretted that and wish I had stuck with it, but, by expanding my areas of study, I mean, I, I ended up doing a sort of a sociology major. I was, I was in this little um, artsy college within the University of Michigan where you could craft your own major a bit. Um, I, everything I've done, including Big in China and certainly all the music, the, the music biographies are a form of cultural anthropology and sociology. Um, and so I do think I benefited from, you know, essentially studying both uh, creative writing um, and social sciences and um, journalism. Essentially, I didn't. I never have never taken a journalism class since high school. But um, I was an editor at the Michigan Daily, which is a wonderful newspaper at the University of Michigan. So um, that was sort of like a, it was sort of like I I majored in all three of those things, and I, I do think that paid off for me. So um, I, I I have at times had regrets I didn't pursue the creative writing more, but I think I. I sort of unconsciously, you know, again, improvisatorily, <laughs> you could say improvisationally, um, end up um, with, with a combination of, of studies that, that worked pretty well for me and sort of set me up towards what I was doing now, even though I, I, I really didn't quite think of it that way. Well, maybe that latent creativity that's been stifled all these years has, <laughs> uh, has some time to, to flower. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I love uh, reading fiction and I use some fiction writing techniques in my books. Um, certainly in the, um, in the first one, Big in China, and the last one, uh, Brothers and Sisters, the, um, and, and, and also in the other two, but they're oral history. So it's a little bit of a different format. Um, and I, it, you know, I still think of it in narrative structure exactly the same. Um, but in terms of the writing technique, you can't really use the same kind of fiction writing techniques um in an oral history that you can in prose yeah and for the readers out there and the listeners and the viewers you'll notice that the transition from uh, one way out into the to the most recent book brothers and sisters is a transition from that 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 history that oral history to a more narrative form so it's refreshing to see you uh you know um implement techniques for both the kind of yeah. genres and i think it works really yeah. well thank you i mean it's just a matter of the right approach for the right content. Um, with the oral history, you have to remove yourself a little bit more, although you're still in it more than people realize because I'm still choosing what goes in and what goes out and where it goes. 
Um, but it but it doesn't present itself to people in that way. So a lot of people view it as really just a collection of quotes um, and don't see the the creative drive. Whereas when you're writing prose, obviously that's in everyone's face. Um, but but I, I I do feel like I reached the right structure for for the for each book, and um, it felt it felt great to to stretch my um, prose muscles a bit in Brothers and Sisters, and I I do I do feel really good about it. Yeah, yeah, it must be very, very, very satisfying to uh, to succeed in both ways. Um, Thanks. Well, you know what's satisfying is, you know, you see me. I'm sitting in this nice office. I, I, I'm fortunate that I have this cool workspace to be in, and that's all great. Um, but you know, when you're writing a book, it's like for two years. I'm sort of in here. Um, this book, I did a lot of research. I, I was in the Atlanta and making a bunch at the Carter Presidential Library, at the Macon Public Library, at the Big House Museum interviewing people as well but ultimately you're just spending hours upon hours day after day week after week month after month to some extent year after year by yourself writing and um so you know i've been fortunate that that the books have been su successful especially these these last few and um to go out and meet people and do events and hear all my brothers or Steve Ray Vaughan fans, you know, thank, you know, just to see what they get out of it is really gratifying because the process of writing is inherently insecure and, and lonely. Um, and, and, you know, people always ask me if it gets easier as you do more and it, it sort of does. Um, but, but primarily just because, when you have your moments of doubt, they don't become existential. I have faith in myself. I mean, I always, I've always had probably more faith in myself than I should have at times. <laughs> but um, with the writing the books, it, you you really do reach moments of doubt, and you're just like, oh my god, what if this is no good? What if I'm just, you know, I just spent months doing this because that's the most nerve wracking point. Um, when you get to the point where you're ready to show it to someone, namely my editor, but even like there's been some other readers or, and you get to that point and you show it to them and then you're waiting to hear back. That's the period where it's really hard. Like in theory, you should be like plowing ahead onto the next chapters, but it's, it's really hard to get a little frozen. Um, that has got a little easier each time just because I'm like, I'm more confident. It's, it's going to be okay. It's good. Um, and I welcome some criticism and feedback. Um, but I, I'm not, you know, the first couple I was really worried. <laughs> like, what if they just come back and say, this sucks? Um, now what? You know, no, no. I, I mean, I'm either fine on my deadline or I'm in big trouble, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's certainly something that will keep you sleepless at night, <laughs> awaiting the yeah. return of the of the remarks. Yeah, that's true. I usually am okay with the big things. It's always some, like, little, <laughs> little nagging thing. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, I get, I, I am past the point now of so far of of like laying awake and freaking out like that um I, I say so far because i mean it's just every book is different i mean my my next one could could do that to me who knows um but one thing i'm, I'm working on by the way since you said such nice things about being in china is an expanded updated version of being in china um because there's there's things that I wish I had put in and then there's uh, some really interesting stuff that's happened since um, with all of us, but especially my Chinese bandmates. Um, and I would really like a chance to, to bring it up to today. Um, 
And I actually had started work on that before I started Brothers and Sisters, and then I put it aside um, to do Brothers and Sisters. And so I've, I've been back uh, tinkering with it a little bit, and I'm kind of ready to plunge into it. So we will eagerly await Bigger in China, part yeah, two. Yeah, well, that's one of the challenges. What do I call it? Because um, I don't want it to just be big, excuse me, big in China updated because it's uh, it's going to be considerably different. Um, yeah, I, 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 that, that's something I have to figure out. But I just want to write it because I want to write it. I don't know what my, ex I don't really have huge expectations for getting a lot of money or, you know, making the bestsellers list with this one or whatever. I just... I feel that I have more to say. And um, what, what we didn't realize, and, you know, um, I, I didn't have the perspective, and there was sort of no way to know this. We were in China at just an extraordinary time. Um, we, we sort of knew that, but it's become more clear since we thought we were there at the sort of beginning of it opening up, that we were riding a crest towards it becoming really integrated. Um, into the rest of the world. And it turns out we were really there at the peak of that. Um, and it's gotten more and more closed down, which is it's really sad um, for, for a lot of reasons. But um, it wasn't just an extraordinary time for expats in China. It was an extraordinary time in China. Um, some really smart, knowledgeable, historically savvy Chinese friends have told me we were there for at the best time in China in 5,000 years. Uh, my friend Li Yuan, the great uh, journalist at the New York Times, told us that over dinner, and I almost fell off my chair. Um, but I've since discussed it with her at length and with some other really smart Chinese people, and it's not a crazy idea. That that's and and that's also representative of how Chinese people think. You know, they think about thousands of years. Um, so. Um, yeah, that's some of the perspective I'd like to bring to the book. I mean, I just. It, it, it's just, uh, it's the ultimate good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. And, and we were only semi-aware of it. In, in yeah, and I, and I wanted to address this subject of China uh, later in the conversation, but I think now is as good a time as any since you brought it up. Uh, reading it in 2023 is, is quite shocking, I must say, especially if you're uh, attuned to geopolitics as I am. Uh, or even if you're just loosely aware of, of what's happening abroad. Because uh, yeah. the, China, the China that you depict is so vastly different from the general, let's say, American perception of what it is now. Now, a lot of that is attributable to you know, propagandistic efforts, which is normal when you have two very large and powerful <laughs> nations, uh, often in economic contest, let's say, with, with each other. Um, but the picture that you draw is is so starkly different from from what we imagine. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, between the two ages when you lived there and, and today. Well, first of all, it's really it, it is as different as you think. But but before I address that, I want to say one of the reasons I wanted to write about all this stuff, it, it, although it is very different. People at the time, 15 years ago, when I was writing this, when I was writing my columns for the Wall Street Journal that were the sort of um, ground floor first step towards the book, and then when I wrote the book, and um, people here still were surprised. It was very different than what people imagine. 
it wasn't so wacky, you know, to have these great Chinese musicians <laughs> and to have that there were great bars in China that had music and we all went about our business and lived our lives. And China at the time, it wasn't politically free. This is this is hard for a lot of Americans to wrap their head around. Um, people hear about a one party system and sort of a lack of um, freedom politically. Obviously, you can't vote. Um, there's very limited options about a lot of things. So people immediately think of like North Korea and a totally repressive regime. China during these years was not like that. Um, it was quite open and free in day-to-day -day life if you didn't challenge the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and certainly there were people who did and who faced horrible consequences. Um, there are people who read my book and even my columns before the book um, and thought I was, you know, naive and I'm out there having a great time. And meanwhile, people are getting locked up. Um, and that that is true to a certain extent. Um, and, I, and, and we were aware of it. We weren't naive. But the flip side of that is that most people live their lives with real freedom. Um, again, as long as you didn't challenge the powers that be in political ways, people, businesses were really free. Um, restaurants were opening up all over the place. Bars were opening up all over the place. These um, bars that we played in in the band and that I described as well as I could um, were not crazy places. They weren't like speakeasies that you had to like, you know, do a secret knock on. They were bars. They were they were incredible places. Um, I think I wrote about in, in the epilogue, I went back after I'd moved for, for a, a Beijing Blues, which was our CD, um, CD release party and tour. And we went down to the southern city. Uh, uh, um, I can't believe it. I'm blanking on the name of the city, uh, Guangzhou. And we played, uh, uh, we, we played three shows in one night. There was three clubs owned by one guy. And he sent a bus to take us around. Um, and they were they were incredible. Each of them were totally different. We played in like a sort of you know, smoky blues club. And then we went into a place that was like a giant disco sort of thing, but they had multiple rooms and we were playing in like a lounge, you know, it had a big stage. And then we had a bus that took us out and played like a light late night set at, a, at another third club. So I mean, that stuff was, was happening in China and it wasn't like some super special thing we were getting because I was American. I mean, they had bands doing that every night. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that stuff was happening in ways that people here just didn't understand. They thought that it was so incredible, but um, it, it was incredible, but it wasn't unusual. Do you think if you were to embark upon your Chinese journey again right now, you would have a similar experience? No, I don't. Um, no, I, uh, well, first of all, I couldn't embark on my Chinese experience now for a variety of reasons, but uh, on the most profound level, uh, there's really virtually no Western journalists there. Um, we moved to Beijing because my wife became the uh, um, China bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. And it was the thriving. There were, I mean, again, journalists faced problems. You know, some of the journalists were harassed. Certainly uh, the Chinese staff were always at danger. We, you know, my wife and other people 
like her at positions at the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR and all the TV networks, CNN, and all, you know, they they all were always concerned about their Chinese staff. They protected them. It's a real fine line because, like, when they did work, you wanted to credit them. You don't want to steal their work, but uh, sometimes crediting them could put them into danger. So. It's not like that stuff didn't exist, but there were tons of Western journalists there. I mean, the Wall Street Journal alone had, um, geez, I don't know, I think we had seven people. I say we, I was not one of the seven, but, I, you know, it was part of it was my social life. And, you know, there were about seven people for the Wall Street Journal. The New York Times had three um, and, and on down the line. So. Um, there was a, a whole world of foreign correspondents there, and they're, they're not there now. You know, there's a handful of people. There are some still there. So that literally wouldn't happen. Um, you know, there was thriving international schools because there were so many expats. We're there at a period where every American company wanted to be in there, so it wasn't just uh, journalism by any means. Um, yeah, that, that whole universe that we inhabited and that I wrote about um, – you know, is is just gone. It's nice. It doesn't exist. So, yes, yeah, so I don't know how I would even get to, to step one, much yeah. less the rest of yeah. the stuff. And in terms of the music, um, from my understanding, um, that this stuff still exists. Um, I just, I'm in touch with my guys. Woody just sent me a clip of him and uh, John Young, our bass player, played a gig together. Uh, he's doing some really different music now where he's playing with loops and pre-recorded music. Um and playing harmonica and, and lap steel and all this same stuff, same instruments he did. And John Young is playing bass. But um, so it's still it's still going on, but there's not the same kind of thriving club scene. And um, places can get shut down at a moment's notice. And it's a little more now, like people thought it was <laughs> than when I when I mentioned how people were so surprised that I was out there um, playing in, in clubs and stuff. Um, it was nothing unusual then, but it is a little bit now. Now, blues and rock as a genre or as genres kind of have a reputation for being a little bit uh, edgy, maybe a little bit contrary to the decencies of, of uh, polite society. So I can imagine that bandmates like yours and other blues players across China are particularly susceptible to... Uh, <laughs> close government scrutiny, let's say. Um, Do you find that to be the case amongst blues players uh, or even no. just musicians generally in, in that part of the world? Um, not not really, but again, more so now. Um, it, it, there was one time we, we played like a street festival um, in Beijing and we were told that um, we had to turn in the lyrics to every song we were singing to like the local authority. And... Um, Woody said to me, you have to bring all the lyrics, but uh, these guys don't even know anything. They don't read English. Just print out a bunch of love songs. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think we basically just gave them what we were actually playing and maybe threw in a couple really benign things. Um, it, so it was sort of there, but there, there really nobody was really paying attention. That was like someone just checking the box, like so they could say that they had checked. And it was a little safer singing in English, to be honest. Um, we did also uh, have some Chinese songs that uh, Zhang Yang, a bass player, um, wrote great songs, great songwriter. Um, 
they're really apolitical songs. You know, one is called World of Baobe, one of my favorite songs, um, which basically means like my baby. World of Baobe is like a, a Chinese um, term for like sort of like my sweetie. Um, and, and then he had another one called Anjing Shenhua, which means the relaxed life. You know, it's basically like, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to work that hard. I just want to have a relaxed life. So the nature of it was was that um, two of the guys in my band that I just mentioned, Woody and Jung Young, also played in another band called Slap, which was a really cool, interesting band. I And I always enjoyed going to see them. Um, the, the lead singer had this long um, Confucian style beard and he wore traditional Chinese outfits. And they had they were a little hard, kind of hard rocking, but he would recite like traditional Confucian poetry. Um, they were they were really pretty cool hip band. So just recently, Woody just shared this with me. Um, they became controversial. Woody and Jung Young had not played with him for years, but the band still exists, and the front man is still the same guy, the songwriter. And they wrote a song um, that was basically about like the few years of COVID lockdown, and it just. It was almost like a um, we didn't start the fire on a song that we just went through like a couple of years of Chinese history, not the long history, and talked about things that had happened, like the lockdown and you know um, deaths and uh, from COVID. So, and, so Wuhan didn't leak the virus instead of yeah. we didn't start the fire. Yeah, but it, it wasn't even like overtly political like that or anything. Yeah, it just yeah. like listing things. There was a really a thing that had gotten a lot of attention on social media in China about a woman who was found chained uh, to a cabin by her husband. She was basically a slave to him and that became a thing. So that was mentioned in there. And then it got it, it went viral got shared all over and then they got banned um and and woody told me about that whole thing and uh like looked into it and talked to some chinese friends who knew all about it um they became a bit of a sensation for all the wrong reasons and it's it's terrible i mean they didn't end up getting in trouble but they did have all their shows canceled and it's like if you're a musician or creative person in this age like your hope your goal whatever is for something to get picked up and go viral you know, and they did it. They hit the nerve that people were were digging and they had a thing go viral. And instead of it being like a great thing in their lives, um, it became this huge burden and they, and they lost their touring career. So, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff makes me really sad. Um, I, I do want to go back to China as soon as I can and play with them and see Woody. Um, and so I, I battle myself on self-censorship because uh, I don't really want to be a self-censoring person and not speak truth about, about what I see happening or what I know of happening in China. Um, but uh, you, you never know, like somebody could, somebody, when, when I try to get my next visa, somebody could poke around and find this, this view. And um, I, I hate that, like that that's even a part of my thought process. Um, but you know, because I, but but I do want to go back and and be able to see those guys and play music with them. And so, well, um, if it's any if it's any comfort if it's any comfort to you, this channel is still sufficiently small and obscure that I yeah doubt, no but, I I doubt the apparatchiks thank you no, but, but I mean, scouring the internet example. and finding I, I'm just using it as an example that 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 thought even crosses my mind. I hate. Um, it's more so an issue like on social media, you know, like, well, I say something on Twitter or Facebook or something. And I do, um, I, I don't really allow myself to just, but, but I, but I also don't 
you know, making a big point. But um, I, listen, part of it is um, it's not just about getting visas. I want to protect those guys. Like I, I get worried when Woody is very honest with me about some things and it makes me nervous. Um, we have channels that we communicate that he's confident or secure and stuff. But, um, you know, I, the last thing I want to do is get my friends in trouble. That's, 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 they're the ones I worry about. I mean, if I can't go, I can't go, but um, I couldn't forgive myself if that happened. Let me pivot from these more practical considerations to something a little bit more abstract. Uh, sure. And that is sort of the, the visceral uh, love that so many people have for blues uh, and for jazz and for that type of music. We've mentioned the fact that you spent these years in China. And I think most of us who pick up your book, Big in China, begin to read it are surprised to know that you know, such a form of music even exists in so far flung a place. So I want to ask you, and there's no, I don't think, clear answer to this, but I just want to know your opinion. What is it about the blues that elicits so uh, inexplicable and visceral a reaction? What is it that that draws so many people to it from so many different ethnicities, regions of the world, right. religions, and things like that? Well, it's it, it's there's nothing intrinsic in a way. It, 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 it's all in the performance of it, you know, so it has to be done properly. Um, but when it's done properly, it's it's done in expressing emotions of joy, even it's not always sadness, you know, that which is something people miss out on. But the depth of emotion and human relationships. Um, I mean, I so, so part, part of the way I'm going to answer this is I never consider myself a singer or a front person. You know, I would get up and sing a song at a party now and then or, you know, but but I was never a front person of a band. I never thought I was a great singer um at all i still don't but um i do have the ability to convey emotions and use my voice uh, as a tool in the right settings um i felt liberated singing in china to some extent because um most of my audience didn't speak english uh, a lot of them didn't and it i took it as a challenge that i have to convey this music if someone doesn't understand a word I'm saying, I still want them to know what I'm saying. And I believe you can do that. I believe that I, I did that. Uh, not always, you know, but when everything went right, I could do that so that someone would have a feeling of the, what the emotions of the song were. Yeah, by um, and large, by and large, did you, did you find it to be the case that a lot of people were familiar with the blues standards, the lyrics to the, the to those songs? That uh, no, not really. But um, it's hard to explain. Like e even the guys in my band who were fantastic musicians and really well versed in a lot of this stuff, they didn't. They they had very spotty knowledge. Like they knew a lot of songs that they I have have come up. Uh, obviously, I'm I was I've worked in uh, music journalism for thirty years. I view things as in this very like family tree kind of way, you know, like um, Muddy Water, like Robert Johnson, Charlie Patton can beget Muddy Waters, Muddy Waters beget um, you know, Buddy Guy, and then the Rolling Stones named themselves after a Muddy Waters song that was written by Willie Dixon. And I see everything in this family tree sort of way. So here's here, and the Allman Brothers are over here, and 
States Revolution was written by Vine Willie McTell in 1938. This is like where my head is, so I hear things and file it like that. Those guys didn't know any of that. They knew various uh, parts. They were familiar with the music, but in sort of random ways, and they had no idea of the relationship of one thing to another. Um, you know, like uh, Jog Young wanted to play the song Come On In My Kitchen, the, the um, Robert Johnson song, and it's like, okay, uh, but he didn't call it that. He said, I want to play this. He sent me an MP3 of this sort of cool, upbeat, funky version of Come On In My Kitchen. He had no idea. He didn't even know who it was. I still, I think it was the Steve Miller band. I still am not even completely sure who it was. We learned that we we did this version based on this random MP3 that he had come across. Um, so it was really interesting. So the audience was the same but even more so because these guys were pretty deep into music and they still were so no i don't i don't there's enough familiarity with certain random things i mean like sometimes we would if, if someone come up and jam with us or we're just finishing a show we would play knocking on heaven's door okay it's a easy song it's a, well a lot of people over there knew knocking on heaven's door because they knew the guns and roses version um <laughs> But um, they had no idea that it was a Bob Dylan song or, you know. And, and sometimes um, it gave me license. I felt playing and singing those songs like I wrote them, which I think, I think you have to do if you want to successfully play other people's music. And a lot of people do it. I mean, uh, you know, Bonnie Raitt didn't write Angel from Montgomery. John Prine did. But if you don't know that and you hear her sing Angel from Montgomery, she's singing it with every fiber of her being. And, and it would certainly seem like something that she wrote that has lived. Um, and so I felt, again, I, like I just felt liberated in a way to let myself go because the crowd didn't know. There was nothing cheesy about any of the music. Even, the, even you know, like John Young came in one day, he wanted to play Proud Mary. He just heard Proud Mary. Primary is kind of like a played by every bar band for decades in America song. Like I would think it's kind of too cheesy for my band to do, but he had just heard it. You know, he's like, this is incredible. This is an incredible song. Okay. You know, we'll do it, but we'll do it for the Chinese crowds. Not when we play in front of Western audiences, but there was stuff like that. Like everything was, was just an open book. And that's what also made it um, super exciting. So you talked about the sort of the lineage of some of these artists. Um, I want to know a little bit about your musical lineage. Um, tell me, what song first really gripped you? You talk in, uh, in your book, your biographical work, uh, about your upbringing in Pittsburgh. You mentioned your, your father, who is a, a music-loving pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you mentioned your brother who first exposed you to Almond Brothers and gave you a copy of Eat a Peach. That's right. Uh, yep. So was that your first true romance? Maybe that CD and that experience? I'm sure no. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say CD, that album yeah, and that vinyl. experience no, uh, or vinyl. Or do you remember experiences prior to that that were really transformational yeah. for you? I mean, I was really into music from way before then, like when I was little. Um, I mean, I loved the Glenn Campbell variety show. I love Glenn Campbell. I mean, I, I remember I got a Glenn Campbell record for Hanukkah when I was probably like six years old and um, like a plastic toy guitar. I have a photo of me somewhere 
sitting with a bandana around my neck and holding the guitar, but I'm holding it backwards. So I'm like playing the plastic part. I knew so little, but um, yeah, I just always loved music. I used to have this little white transistor radio with the white headphone, earphone, single earphone. Anybody uh, my age or older would will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it, you know, the audio on it was just terrible, but um, I used to walk around listening to baseball and football games on it. But I listened to music at night and the thing about the uh, headphone is I could sneak it. So I would leave that under my pillow. And then when I went to bed, I'd pull my covers up and listen to music on it just on the radio. And like, I remember hearing Steve Miller band, The Joker, and just like being totally transfixed by it and singing along. So yeah, that and Glenn Campbell. And then actually, um, not a first, but really early. I mean, I loved brother of uh, the Allman Brothers before the Eat a Peach thing. But the, the era that I wrote about in Brothers and Sisters, I was only seven and eight when that happened. But uh, Ramblin' Man especially was such a big radio hit that I heard it all the time. So I certainly knew who the Allman Brothers were. But my brother gave me Eat a Peach and it just said, listen to this. And... Something about that, and, and in general, I listened to all of his records, you know, had a big impact. And we had a babysitter, was a really good family friend who's 15 years older than me. Um, he went to medical school in Grenada when I was like 12, I think, and left all his records um, with us. And he had Janis Joplin and Leonard Cohen and The Doors and some cool jazz stuff. And um, that was more outside even. So I listened to that. Like, I didn't. It's not that I fell in love with any of that stuff in the same way I did with the Allman Brothers, but I was exposed to a much wider range of music than most of my peers. Um, and, and my father, you mentioned, was a jazz-loving pediatrician. Um, he listened to a lot of Louis Armstrong and Fats Waller. Um, I wouldn't say I loved that music. I, I came around to that later, but I was aware of it. I, you know, There weren't that many kids I knew my age in the 80s who knew Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong. Um, and, and I did, uh, but it's not like I sat around and listened to them on my own. Uh, my parents also, especially my mother, listened to a lot of classical music. Um, and so I, I never really even got to where I, until later, knew what was what with classical music, but I liked it. So there was just a lot of music. I, I just liked every, I, I didn't like everything. Some things I just didn't like, but when I say I liked everything, I mean, I liked a wide variety of genres. Um, if I liked it, I liked it. Um, so, you know, that, that was good. I, the, the, my only flaw with that is sometimes I set myself up as being like someone who listened to things outside the mainstream and I missed out on some really great music <laughs> inside the mainstream because I thought it was like, I don't know, you know, too mainstream, too beneath me or something. And, um, you know, that, that's always a silly way to be. You should, you should react to the music uh, and like what you like. And, um, I, I, I'm much better about that now. Do you think that our appreciation for, for music is um, weakened in some ways today in our current age by the ubiquity of the music? I was thinking yeah. about this. I was thinking about this as I prepared for our conversation. I am inundated by music all day long. I, I have my little JBL speaker and I have my Spotify account, which is saturated with music from every single genre. And I was thinking back to when I was younger. And of course, I didn't live in the age of vinyl. I wish I had. <laughs> and, I, and, and I wish that were more um, you know, available to me when I was a, a youngster. But I grew up in the age of CDs. And 
it's it's a very tangible physical thing. You you hope and pray that for Hanukkah or for Christmas you receive this this CD or for your birthday, you have to physically put it into the CD player. Uh, and I remember it vividly in my living room in New Jersey um, and put it into the tray and, and listen to it and, and then, you know, skip ahead or, or go rewind and go back to it again. But now there's just so much music available to us with just the, the swipe of a thumb. So do you think for that reason that we've, Kind of lost our appreciation for really good music because of how available it is i mean yes and no uh, definitely there's something to what you're saying for sure um the upside of the streaming is that you know almost the whole history of music is available at your fingertips and i utilize that all the time i mean i'm reading books and i just read about a song and i pull it up or i you know read a, read something and i listen to it i like that um, I like the way my kids, especially my, my daughter, I notice will listen to music uh, more freeform. Like, um, I, I think people are some, to some extent less tribal about their music. Um, I mean, certainly there, there are examples of people being tribal, like Taylor Swift, you know, Swifties are, are pretty tribal. Um, but my daughter, who's sort of a Swifty, but I'll walk into a room and she's listening. Now, I, first of all, she does listen to a lot of music that she was exposed to by me, which is great. So, I mean, I walk in and hear her listening to the Allman Brothers, the Grateful Dead and John Prine. <laughs> it makes me happy. But she also listens to some of that stuff just because once you start listening to some of that stuff on Spotify, the algorithms bring you some pretty cool stuff. So I'll walk in and she's, she'll, you know, she'll listen to Holland Oates followed by, you know, Biggie followed, you know, and, and I like, I like that. I feel like she and her friends anyhow are pretty open to being exposed to things and they listen to things and they share it and they make playlists. Um, and I make playlists all the time. And I, I, I like that. I have like a, a wide range of them I listen to on my Sonos. So um, I like being able to mix it all up. I, I, you know, I still have vinyl. I still have CDs, and I go through phases where I listen to them a lot, and I don't. But I, I, I like the ubiquity of having everything. I like being able to just make a playlist that has, you know, Fats Waller next to the Allman Brothers next to whatever. I mean, I, I, I listen to some rap, <laughs> hip hop. You know, I like Biggie, and I like some of the really old school hip-hop and um but I, I i don't really want to sit down and listen to that for hours but i like throwing it into to a mix because i do like a lot of it so i um there there is something to it it's not just music it's the ubiquity of everything devalues it um having endless words available on the internet is awesome you can find so many great things that you used to have to dig and dig and dig for and maybe find maybe not um, and I think that's great, but it also diminishes everything. So every word you write is just like dropped into the sea of everything. And I think it's harder sometimes for new music to get a foothold because you are competing with everything. Like, okay, you wrote a rock song. Well, is it better than the Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street? Because I could be listening to that on my phone, you know? <laughs> so what, you know, it's, it's like that. Yeah, yeah. It's in some ways the scarcity uh, determines its value. The same way that gold is more valuable than water. Uh, water yeah, there's something to that. And that relates to why people liked us, Woody Allen Band, in Beijing. You know, we weren't just another <laughs> band playing this stuff. We were really unique. Um, 
for a lot of reasons. The music we were playing, the fact that we were a mix of Chinese and Western. Um, there, there certainly were others, but for the most part, there were Western bands and there were Chinese bands, and there weren't that many mixed. Um, and 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 especially mixed. And this is part of, you know, we were talking before about, about the collaborative improvisatory music. This was really important to me. When I first started playing with the guys, I was singing everything. Even eventually we did bring in some of the other guys to sing, but um they were coming from like a pop rock background where they really followed the vocalist and they were like the backing band. And I am coming much more from like a um a band vision where the drummer and the bass player have just as much to say in where how the music feels and where it goes than the singer. Um, it's it's sort of an unusual concept if you haven't come up through it. And so it was interesting to me to realize um, that as much as I looked up to these guys as being such better musicians than me, really, I had things to teach them too. And that was big. And that was revelatory for them. And they loved it. You know, it, it took them a little time to get the feeling of it, but that's what I sort of tried to convey to them. And, and uh, you know, which is like, you could play the same exact set on Wednesday night and Thursday night, and it can be totally different because maybe Wednesday night, you just were in a great mood and everything was great. And Thursday night you were late and you stumbled in uh, into the gig late and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you're a mess. It's okay. Like play it, play it aggressive play more aggressive or sadder or whatever um yeah it, it was it was a cool experience and i i felt great once i realized that i had something to offer them as well as what they were offering me yeah yeah what a wonderful exchange it must have been i i want to approach our conclusion you've been very generous with your time and i know <laughs> i'm <laughs> getting yeah. toward the toward the end i want to ask one more question and then a couple rapid fire questions if you'll indulge me so yep. the first one will include uh, or will require me to summarize a short passage from your latest book, Brothers uh, and Sisters, available for purchase everywhere, of course. Uh, you say that the vibe on Brothers and Sisters, the album, was unknowingly tapping into a national mood. The country sought tranquility, togetherness, a simpler, more peaceful time after being torn apart in the 1960s by social upheaval. The country was uh, then grappling with political scandal, economic distress, and uh, as a certain peanut farmer turned president would later put it, an unshakable national malaise. And I can't but think that we find ourselves in a similar situation today. Maybe you disagree, but my question is, do we still have musicians who can speak to the national mood as the Almond Brothers did in the uh, 1970s. A short <laughs> glimpse at the performances headlining this past weekend's Video Music Awards leads me to the conclusion that we might not, uh, but I want to know what you think about this. Um, yes, yes, again, this is a yes and no, because, um, I don't think any artist can become as ubiquitous as an artist was then. Okay. So uh, we didn't have that many choices. We didn't have Spotify and um, we didn't have YouTube. And, and, and so you obviously could buy your own music and you could listen to things on the radio and the radio was much more limited. And when something became a radio hit, it could become ubiquitous in a way that nothing really can today. So Taylor Swift can have these 
she's she you know has an incredible career and an incredible following but there's also like tons of people who wouldn't know taylor swift song if it hit them in the head so um that was not the case as everybody knew rambling man you necessarily like it or love it, whatever but everybody sort of knew it so that that is sort of gone but i do think that you can step back and see you know there was no way like i said they were unwittingly tapping into the national mood they didn't calculate that it just things fell into place the waltons was a popular tv show little house on the prairie it was all part of the same cultural vibe there's a wonderful blog uh, called the honest broker by ted joya who's a great music writer and um i just was reading something he wrote the other day about the increase in the number of uh, minor key songs that are hits in the bill in the, in the you know and 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 sad songs uh, low low beat per minute um sorry it's my dog whining she wants to go out um and i think that's tapping into a national mood that's not unrelated to surge in um you know depression and suicide and so i think that there's a whole school of like um I don't know, somewhat whispery women, you know, like Phoebe Bridgers, a lot of her music is like that. And there's a whole genre. Um, and I think their popularity is definitely reflective of the state of, you know, young people, probably especially young women in their mental state right now and emotional state. Um, you know, um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's as ubiquitous, but I think it still happens. And things become popular for for reasons that you don't necessarily realize at the time, but you can look back at them later and say, oh, that was what was happening in the country at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure that we'll be looking back and uh, <laughs> seeing any, any light like that uh, years from now. So <laughs> let's... Let's conclude with a couple of rapid fire questions. How does that sound? Good. Excellent. My first question is Ramblin' Man or Ramble On? Which song about rambling is your favorite? The Almond Brothers, Ramblin' Man or Ramble On by Led Zeppelin? Uh, Ramblin' Man, which is not even really one of my favorite Almond Brothers songs at all, but I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a giant uh, Led Zeppelin lover. Um, I mean, I, I certainly like a lot of their music um, and that, that's a great one. Most of their stuff that I like the best um, has an acoustic guitar in it. You know, <laughs> um, I like the more mellow stuff more. Yeah, I'm that's why the, early, the earlier blues cuts are, are just stupendous. Yeah. Uh, the Almond Brothers have multiple songs whose titles are women's names, most notably Melissa and Jessica. What is your all-time favorite song whose title is a woman's name? Um. Probably Jessica. And, and ironically, the other one that would be a, a candidate is Stevie Ray Vaughan's Lenny. Uh, Lenny was written for his uh, then girlfriend, uh, became his wife, and, and uh, Jessica was written for Dickie Betts' daughter. Um, Melissa is a mythical woman. She, she didn't exist. Uh, but it, it's in, interesting the ones that really are named after someone, you know, like like Lenny and Jessica. That's not why I like them. But I just, both of those songs are instrumental, but, but speak volumes and I, I think are fantastic songs. Yeah, as you recount in your book, I think um, Greg Allman heard the name Melissa in a grocery store. <laughs> and Well, that's what maybe... he always said. And I do say that in Brothers and Sisters. That's his story. But um, I sort of bust that myth, actually, in Brothers and Sisters, um, because 
I believe he wrote that song a couple of years after he says he did. And that whole Melissa in the grocery store story never fully made sense to me, but it was, it was his story. He repeated it all the time, including in his own book and including to me in one way out. But um, I think I did some new Melissa scholarship in, in uh, brothers and sisters. And I, and I stand by what's in there. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I, I would just to, to give my uh, selection, Simon and Garfunkel, Cecilia, that's my favorite woman named influenced song <laughs> yeah also it's a great song beautiful song love, I just, I love it's inexhaustible to me every time i listen to it i love it um let's for someone who's unacquainted with but interested in the blues can you give us three songs that we should listen to oh boy well the blues is um such a giant giant field so um it, it really depends like where you want to go with that. Um, so I'll, I'll give you three that are sort of covering a, a little bit of a gamut and, uh, and, and then see which one you like the best and then start exploring more. So, uh, you know, Money Waters and Howlin' Wolf are, are the two Superman of, of Chicago blues. Um, and in a way, they're too similar, but I, I can't leave either one of them out. So I'll say Howlin' Wolf's Spoonful and Muddy Waters um maybe uh i'm ready champagne and reefer it doesn't matter anything muddy waters uh late 50s uh sides with with chess records for third one i don't know I'm, i might go with uh I, I i just can't pick three i mean i'll say bb king's the thrill is gone and albert king's blues after sunrise uh um uh there's, there's just so many. T-Bone Walker's uh, uh, Stormy Monday. Uh, I, I couldn't leave that off the list. <laughs> there's too many. And I'm, I'm still only barely scratching the surface. I would listen to some great piano blues by like maybe Otis Spann, um, you know, which, which <laughs> get you going on that. And there's, there's no, too I many. Think that's, I think that's a good, a good primer. I think that's perfect for what I was looking for. And my final question to you, if you could interview any musician, living or dead, Throughout history, whom would it be? Throughout history, well, um, I don't know. I, I might, I might want to talk to Mozart, but I, I would feel really, really unqualified uh, to interview Mozart. I would almost be like, "Hey, Mozart, what's up? <laughs> how, why do you write? The, how do you write those great songs?" So, if I, if I had a lot of time to prep might be Mozart because a person who has had just so much uh, impact, it's it's like incalculable. But um, more in our own world, I, I would probably want to interview um, John Coltrane. Um, but to really get at the heart of what my whole life has been about, I guess I would have to interview Dwayne Allman. Huh. Um, I thought, because, I thought yeah, I had so many questions for Dwayne. Dwayne or Stevie, I, I mean – I spent so much time really getting to know them that it's less that I would even want to interview them, that I would just want to hang out with them and see if all my impressions of them were correct. Yeah, there is some risk, though, in that. Maybe they were wrong. And <laughs> Yeah, I talked to a lot of people about both of them, so I feel pretty confident. But, but yeah, there is some risk in that. That's true. But, I mean, what is life without risk? Yeah. That's a great, a great message on which to, to conclude. So 
Alan, I have to thank you so very much for being, you know, absolutely generous with your time. I know we we surpassed yeah. our <laughs> time allotment. Well, and your dog my has pleasure. You're a good conversationalist, and uh, you know, I'm flattered that you spent so much time and thought on my books. And um, you know, I hope I hope it reaches a person or two. And um, I don't get to talk that often about writing and the creative process, and it's fun for me. And that is what I am. I'm a writer. A lot of people think of me at this point as like an Almond Brothers expert, and um, I am an Almond Brothers expert. I've developed that expertise, but that's not how I want to be identified, or it's not how I primarily think of myself. I think of myself as a writer. Um, that's what I do. So I'm 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 happy to talk about that and my process and my craft. Right, and I can't emphasize that enough. You're not merely a chronicler of the Almond Brothers and of Steve Ray Vaughan, although you do that wonderfully. Uh, you're you're also a fantastic writer in your own right. So that's why I encourage everybody, go back to Big in China. Again, it was sort of an unexpected delight to, to have that laid yeah. in my lap and to read that. And uh, I certainly look forward to Bigger in China, part two, perhaps, <laughs> the, perhaps even the um, reunion of the band. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. <laughs> and... Uh, Unfortunately, though, you're not available on Spotify. I did search your your band's name, and uh, yeah, you know, it was available on Spotify. Um, we uh, we had a Chinese record label, Guitar China, um, and they reached a Spotify deal. I signed off on it, um, and, and then it was there, and then it was gone. So, um, yeah, I I do own the the music. I I should work on getting it back on Spotify. Uh, you would absolutely have a listener in me. Uh, so you. I'll include notes. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in the show notes below, I'll include links to your four books. I'll include a link to you know any social media pages that you'd like to, to share with people and have them visit. As for me, my humble supplication to you, uh, my friends and listeners and viewers, is simply to subscribe to this channel and to help it grow so we can attract more fantastic guests like Mr. Paul. Um, so... Until next time, I bid thee all farewell from Finner and Zwick.